You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're all safe and well, and you're all once again very welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Masterclass Series. Today, we're going to talk about the right to disconnect. In particular, we're going to talk about the Code of Practice issued by the Department on the 1st of April, two weeks ago. The right to disconnect as a theme is a very good example of one of many themes that employers internationally were already beginning to work with long before COVID. What we have found is that it's also a very good example of a theme that, in theory, works very well as a commendable ideal for employers. However, no employer should be working towards this as an objective. It has the capacity within it to backfire on employers and employees in that it can go against the agility and the flexibility that so many employees are now enjoying in the workplace and that so many employees want to continue to enjoy in the workplace when we return to the workplace in the future. It's something we've actually been working with a large number of employers on over the past two or three years, certainly before COVID and probably even going back as far as the Act decision from the Labour Court in 2018. And what we found from those particular client projects was At an early stage, it was clear if the right to disconnect is to succeed for a given organization, it has to be carefully planned and considered in the context of how that employer works on a day-to-day basis. It has to be carefully considered in the context of the implementation as well, because the implementation must be practical and balanced in that it has to work for both the employees and just as obviously it must work for the employer, because otherwise it will simply fail. To bring us through the discussion here today and to tease out some of the issues and to look at how this code is going to operate in Irish practice, I've asked three other members of the Matheson Employment Pensions and Benefits Group to join us, together with a long-standing client contact. We have Russell Rochford, an employment partner from our Dublin practice. We have Susan Doris Obando, an employment senior associate from the Dublin practice. We have Denise Moran, an employment senior associate from our Cork practice. And we have Adrienne Kiley, a HR business partner from Shopify, a long-standing client that we have had the pleasure of working with for many years since they first set up in Ireland. Many of you will be familiar already with Shopify, but for those of you who aren't, they're a Canadian-headquartered multinational e-commerce platform. Perhaps even more interestingly in the context of what we're going to talk about here today, they're one of a growing number of employers that operate a permanent remote working model. And I'm sure many of you would be interested as to how that works in practice. And we'll be talking to Adrienne later on today on that. As you could expect, we have quite a lot to cover over the course of the next hour. So I'm going to turn straight to Susan to kick off today's session with an overview of the code itself. And Susan, perhaps let me start with the most obvious question of all. What exactly is the right to disconnect and what does it involve? Thank you, Brian. Uh, And hello, everyone. Uh, You're very welcome. Yes, uh, Brian. Well, the code refers to the right to disconnect as an employee's right to be able to disengage from work. So that is not to engage in work-related emails, telephone calls, or other communications outside normal working hours. So the code refers to three elements of this. The right not to routinely perform work outside normal working hours. The right not to be penalized for refusing to attend to work-related matters outside normal working hours. 
And lastly, the duty to respect another person's right to disconnect. So not routinely emailing or calling outside normal working hours. Interestingly, Brian, the code envisages a, a joint approach by the employer and employee in addressing these issues, which is key. And, and indeed, the code itself was drafted by the WRC, that's our Workplace Relations Commission, after a period of public consultation across the spectrum of employer and employee organisations. So it's not just about emails, of course, it's about all form of workplace interruptions outside of normal working hours. So what's the purpose of the code then, Susan, and what's the legislative basis for it? Yeah, well, the purpose of the code is to, you know, basically help employees who feel obliged to routinely work longer hours than agreed in their employment contracts, help employers uh, develop and implement policies and procedures to facilitate the right to disconnect and to provide guidance to resolve issues that employees may have around this right to disconnect, both informally and formally. A key point is, as you've mentioned, Brian, what is the, the legislative basis? Well, it's not an offence not to follow the code. It's not technically legally binding. However, importantly, it is admissible in evidence before the WRC, the Labour Court, the courts or other court proceedings on, on relevant matters. And what are the obligations now on employers and indeed employees as well under the code? Because I think the one thing a lot of employers want to understand early on is what do I need to change? What do I need to do? And the code is helpful on that, Brian. It, it, first of all, it summarises the current legal obligations in this area. And to touch on those in brief, although that's not the focus of, I guess, this uh, webinar, but in brief, the Organisation of Working Time Act, the obligation on the employer there is not to permit an employee to work more than 48 hours per week. The employer must ensure an employee has certain daily, weekly rest breaks. And obviously there's the obligation on the employer under that to keep records of an employee's working time. Under other legislation, you'll be aware that the employees must receive a written statement of their core terms of employment within five days of starting. And one of those core terms we'll all know is hours of work. The employer reasonably expects the employee to work in a normal working day and a normal working week. And then there's the other piece of legislation that the employees must receive a written statement of the remaining terms of employment within two months of starting. And that includes terms and conditions relating to hours of work, including overtime. And the sanctions for those statements and getting it wrong is maximum four weeks. Getting it wrong under the Organisation of Working Time Act is up to two years gross remuneration. It also refers to the usual health and safety legislation, including the employer's duty to take reasonable care to protect the health, safety and welfare of employees. And part of that is to take steps to ensure employees don't work excessive hours. And then the often forgotten duty that exists in law is to take reasonable care, the employee to take reasonable care for their own safety and that of colleagues as well. So that's, it, it, you know, it regurgitates the legal binding obligations. Importantly, now it sets out other obligations, obviously non-binding, but, you know, persuasive and invisible in evidence. And running through those briefly, firstly, to engage the employer, to engage proactively with employees and the representative to develop a right to disconnect policy that takes account, i.e., employer specific of the particular needs of the business and its workforce and to review it annually. I think I'll just interject at this point, if you don't mind, Brian, mm. uh, because this is quite interesting for international employers 
the code provides, and I'm going to quote it because, because I think it will be of particular interest to our international clients. Where appropriate, the policy should recognise that certain businesses and roles within those businesses do not always operate on a standard hours basis, but in a manner responsive to customer needs, where flexibility is required to meet the needs of the business and as agreed in the employee's terms of contract. Where relevant to the business, a right to disconnect policy should address the issue of working across global time zones. It should recognise that working across different time zones and international travel may result in colleagues connecting at different times outside of normal working hours to complete their objectives. This does not mean that the recipient needs to respond in the same time period. Clear guidance around disconnecting and expectations for responding to digital communications globally should be provided to all employees. And I finish quoting there from the code. So mm. although this will be welcome to some, the code is clear that the out-of-hours work should only be permitted, and I quote again, occasional legitimate situations. So I guess the upshot here is that the employer will likely need to give clarity to employees of what constitutes normal working hours, as well as occasional and routine out-of-hours work. And I think here that, you know, where the contract, we all need to focus now on the contract and what it says, but where the contract is unclear what normal working hours are and, and whether they include additional hours to carry out the obligations of the rule, you know, consideration will need to be given to amending perhaps the contract. The employer in, I guess, extreme, very extreme circumstances may also need to look at introducing some form of shift or on-call work to be in compliance with the code, although that could give rise, I guess, to demands for payment. But just going back again then on the obligations, and I'll run through them briefly because I, I know my colleagues uh, are going to elaborate, the obligations under the code include one, the policy and to renew it annually or to review it annually. The next is to a quality proof and to avoid unintended negative consequences to those, and it, it refers to particularly caring responsibilities and those with disabilities who were, may work flexibly. So a review needs to be done in a quality proof, as it's referred to. Also, an employer obligation under the code is to reference the policy in the employment handbook, or right, the employment contract, rather, and to refer to other policies as well, and it refers to dignity work, e-communications, data protection and confidentiality policies. Also to run through about five other obligations that we've picked from the code, there's an obligation to refer to the policy during the induction process, next to provide training for managers on the policy so they can be role models and to employees generally. Consider the introduction of a time management system to record working time, consider the use of measures such as you know, email footers and delay send options, and lastly to facilitate disputes relating to the policy in the, in the grievance procedure. But the last point, Brian, I really want to highlight, and I know some of our colleagues will, is that it stresses the employee's responsibilities too. Now, there's obviously some of the you know, employee's statutory obligation to look after themselves and their colleagues, which is a statutory to which I referred to, there's also the code stresses certain obligations. Firstly, to ensure that the employee manages their own working time and takes reasonable care to protect their own and co-workers' safety, health and welfare. So echoing the statutory obligation there. Secondly, to cooperate with any appropriate employer mechanisms to record time, which again has a background footing. 
Next, to be mindful. And this is a key thing. And again, I, I know our colleagues, given our own personal experience, will refer to this as well. But be mindful of their colleagues, customers, clients, and all other people's right to disconnect. So not routinely email or call outside normal working hours. So that's, that, that affects sort of a cultural shift and then notify their employer in writing of any statutory rest period or break, which they weren't able to avail of and why. So that needs to be flagged. And then lastly, be conscious of their own work pattern and well-being and take steps to address it and remedy it if necessary. Okay, there's so much in that to begin with already, Susan. And I think you've identified early on the likely battleground here is going to be what does occasional mean, what are normal working hours, and the extent of the employee's own obligation. Because I do agree with you, beyond the legislation, there's a cultural change here on the employee's part too, that they need to help the employer make this a success for for both sides. And then just very quickly, Susan, one last question. How does an employee raise concerns on this? Or let me put it another way, where's the risk for an employer if it's just a code of practice? That's a good point. Well, firstly, if an employee feels that their right to disconnect um, is not being respected, they should attempt to, you know, deal with it informally. And it's mentioned in the code that, you know, they refer it to the, the person that's causing the problem or their manager or HR. There may even be a contact person in HR to deal with the right to disconnect. But if the informal approach doesn't work, then the formal grievance procedure may be utilised in the normal way. Okay, and we'll talk about that later on in the the question session. Denise, if I can turn to you now to just talk about how an employer gets ready to roll out a right to disconnect policy uh, under Irish law. And if employers are now required to have one in place, what would a best practice policy look like? Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. They are required to have one now in place. But I think the key point is in looking at what key features that the best practice policy should have is there's actually you can look at the code and actually sets out um, a number of key features. But before I get into those, I think it's really important to echo what Susan has said and ensure that the policy actually includes employers' obligations, very importantly, employee obligations for the points that you and Susan have referred to, you know, how to raise the concerns and the avenue in terms of the informal first and then followed by a grievance and they're all very very important to have in your best practice policy in terms of what the code provides that you should have they're on the slide there and in terms it's really important that the policy very squarely calls out what exactly the purpose of the code is and this is for each employee's right to disconnect and that they won't be penalized for invoking you know such a right so in doing that it needs to very squarely say that you know there is no expectation on employees to be connected to their devices outside of working hours, to check emails, to respond to emails, to be available for after work calls or attending after meetings outside of their normal working hours. And that needs to be, that expectation needs to be very squarely pointed out. And that's the starting point. And then it's really important that the policy goes on to acknowledge that there will be occasional legitimate situations, including where business or operational reasons require it, where it may be necessary to contact employees outside of their normal working hours. And um, this is the reality of the most of you know modern day workplaces where we have moved away from the traditional nine to five working. So th- this is going to arise, and that caveat is definitely very welcome. But the takeaway is that such as situations you know are the exception rather than the norm. So to you know to echo what Susan had said, and and she referred to the code and and referenced it from that in terms of working time. You know, as, as Susan said, you know the, the acknowledgement that there will be certain functions that have a flexible model, or that you know there are organisations that operate across multiple global time zones. 
and indeed that some individuals have flexible arrangements in place that are both beneficial for the employee and the employer and you know where that flexibility has been agreed so but the code specifically says that even for those cohorts of employees so even though that acknowledgements are there and they are welcome the code specifically does say that those cohorts of employees are still entitled to their right to disconnect and each applicable you know each the right to disconnect policy needs to account for the, those applicable cohorts and they need to set out clearly their guidance and their expectations on this and again that is very welcome but the code is clear that you know where there are routine out of office hours being worked um, and where it's not just you know confined to the occasional legitimate situation you know that is arguably a breach of the code so this is definitely going to be the key challenge the very very key challenge for employers mm. and on the day the code was announced itself i think by 10 o'clock that morning i already had a query in from a client an international client raising the very point you're touching upon now the employees based in ireland are working with a number of colleagues in different time zones how do we square that off so how would the policy actually address that yeah and i mean it's i suppose it's with a caveat or just a you know a cautionary note not to go too far i suppose at this stage you know because we need to see how the code you know in terms of the specific practices that that the employers are going to be putting in place to ensure that they comply with the code and as you said to make sure that it works for both employees and make sure that it works for the employer's business and actually that they can continue to work on the business and organization you know needs of the organization mm-hmm. but what it would look like is that you know taking some measures it could look like you know ensuring that your employees you know sign up to you know uh, have a policy in place where you know and we've seen this quite actually quite a number of clients particularly in the finance financial services industry where they have you know email footers at the end of their emails that say okay i work flexible hours i'm sending this to, to you during my working time but i don't expect you to respond until it's within or action what i've asked you to do until it's within your working hours and that's actually provided for in the code but it's something that we had actually seen a lot of clients do you know prior to the, obviously prior to one april another example that i can speak to you know from what personally you know has worked very well in our group was our internal email policy and matson signed up to the mindful business charter last year and that's a for people who weren't aware of it it's a, a framework which encourages signatories and employees to be very thoughtful and considerate in terms of how their work practices you know impact on other people and out of that we came up with an internal email policy which provides that you know it just it just makes you stop and consider if you are working outside of your normal hours you know does this email really need to be sent at this time or is there you know can i you know use the delay send function or can i just send it tomorrow if it's out of you know out of, outside of working hours and the the objective of that was to reduce internal email flow in the evening and just allow our maths and employees to connect without you know in any way compromising the client needs and you know service levels and it has worked in terms of you know reducing email internal email flow in the evenings and and i suppose and even you know there have been times where i have asked the question and you know i have sent the email because you know it was required but it's both exercise in and of itself has you know it does make you think okay i'm respecting my colleagues you know right to disconnect but i'm also you know you know checking my own working habits and i think that has been a very successful and it has achieved its objective so that's that's um certainly something that empl- other employers could take mm, and it's a good example of how employers can actually achieve some of this without it undermining any of their broader commercial objectives as well that that this is all certainly achievable and one of the last question for you then Denise is what role do managers have in implementing this because of course it's not just for the HR director to take charge it's it's for all the managers under the code 
Yeah, and and really the managers play a very central and key role. And, you know, this policy is all about cultivating a culture where companies can create a culture where employees can disconnect. And managers really play the role in actually implementing that in practice. And they are tasked with identifying, you know, well, they're tasked firstly with being role models, active role models, and, you know, demonstrating compliance with the policy through their leadership and making sure that they are visual representations of, you know, complying with code, but also making sure, you know, that their that their team members are also doing it. And where they're not, where their team, let's say their team members are not complying with code, either because, you know, they're unable to comply with code because of, you know, their excessive workload or because maybe there's performance issues or because they're just reluctant to comply with the code because of maybe a broader organizational culture that hasn't quite, you know, shifted yet to complying with the code, then they really have the responsibility of taking action then and speaking, you know, and taking action and and doing what is required to ensure that they themselves or their team members are complying with the code. Mm, And we spoke uh, on a previous webinar about a US tech client that I was familiar with from long before COVID, long before this code, where if the manager was seen to have engaged actively or too much during their own annual leave, it was seen as a, a failure on the manager's part that over the course they hadn't built up a sufficiently independent and strong team that they could trust to look after the work while they were out, which I think is a really good example of how you drive that type of culture if you really are serious about delivering on the objective. Adrienne, can we turn to you now for a moment just to talk about um, some of the related issues here? And it would be a shame not to start off with asking you a little bit about Shopify's agile working model. If you could tell us something about that, please. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Hello, everyone. So Shopify is a commerce company. Our mission is to make commerce better for everyone. Our goal is to bring more Shopify into the world. Uh, That's what we achieve to do every day. We've had work from home model is what we call it, as opposed to remote, because we're conscious that people are working in their physical homes for Shopify. And we've had that set up for years. We would be considered early adopters, I suppose, in agile working. So originally Shopify is is around for over a decade. We're more prominent in the last few years. We've become very well known. We have thousands of employees globally. Originally we would have had in-office employees, but remote employees as well. So for example, I was hired by Shopify three years ago and I was hired into a work from home slash remote contract. So it was in my contract. I was always going to be working from home long before COVID. And Shopify is very used to this. This is the way we work. It's the culture we've developed. And it is our infinite game. This is the game that we want to play in the long term. And we we use it as a, a massive benefit. You mentioned agility, Brian. It essentially gains access to loads of things. And number one, it's talent globally. So you have access to people all over the world, regardless of their geography. So there's no boundary around geography. And that's why we see the biggest benefit to Shopify and why it's so agile for us and why we've used it for years. Okay, that's really interesting. And I'm sure everybody would be keen to hear more about this. And hopefully we'll have time at the end and the questions and answers to get into further detail on it. Going back to the the right to disconnect then and the code, as a HR professional managing a large number of employees in Ireland, what were your initial thoughts when you saw the code? Yeah, initial thoughts, I, I wasn't surprised to see the code in, in practice, it, it's trying to set a standard, a standard for best practice, a standard to inform, you know, protect employees and employers. And, and I'll touch on both sides because it's very important. And what we've done in Shopify is very much address both sides from an employment point of view and employer stance and our lens as an employer, but also from an employee. 
unofficially, officially, like Shopify is already operating under a code right to disconnect. And I, I say that genuinely. It is, I say unofficially because it's built into the culture. It's built into the way that we work. And um, we have a very, very strong culture. We have an internal code in Shopify. And part of it is around time zones, reaching out to your employees. We're a global company. We operate over loads of time zones, loads of, of countries. I myself work with employees and my employee group in Ireland, Canada, Lithuania, Japan, New Zealand. So I have to be very conscious of it. And Denise before me mentioned that. But the biggest thing I think in relation to this is we've had the opportunity Shopify over the last few years to build it into our culture. This isn't going to be something that companies can put in place overnight. It's the way that people are going to get used to operating and it has to come from the leadership team. So our leadership principles in Shopify are embedded in employee experience, culture, wellness, well-being, diversity, and you know the, the right to work and show up and do your best work in Shopify for our infinite game. And it is in this environment and it is for some people and it's not for others. You know, working from home is, is for some and not for all. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there right now that are really trying to figure out is going back into the office suitable, is staying at home more suitable, but this code is in an effort to assist them as they, they navigate those decisions now going back into the workplace post-COVID. And to be honest, Shopify is operating under this, but it is, I would say, the biggest thing for us is it's, it's a cultural nuance now with Shopify. It's the way we talk, it's the way we communicate, it's the way we internally respect each other's time zones. And, you know, I can go into more detail of actually practical things we've set up, if that's of interest to people, to help with that. But but I would emphasize the cultural nuance and the culture that Shopify operates under. And it's born out of trust. And I've said this at, at other webinars and events I've spoken, and trust can be a very intangible thing in general in life, but in workplace, it, it can sometimes be intangible. But it is essentially how Shopify runs its business successfully globally. They trust their employees and they focus everything around employee experience. And if they have set up something that works from an employee experience perspective, it will knock on to have a brilliant impact on our merchants, our merchants, our, our, our customers. Mm. And the trust is, uh, I agree with you, it's a key part of this. And I think where we see one of the challenges is the legislation requires employers to be quite proactive in recording working time. And that really yeah. goes against the idea of trust that has built up over the last 15 years. If anything, it feels a bit regressive because it feels like the old days where the manager didn't trust the employee to work hard, whereas employers have globally successfully changed that and employees do feel trusted by the manager to be let work autonomously and, and to work hard. So we'll have to see how that one works. One other question is, where do you see the challenges for Shopify in implementing this particular code? It sounds like you've done a lot of the hard work already, so maybe it'll be much more straightforward. For yourself. Hopefully. Yeah, like to be honest, we would pride ourselves in this, in the way that we have set this environment up already. Of course, we're going to use the code as a guiding principle to ensure that what we are doing is best practice. And it gives us an opportunity to really sit back, reflect and review what we have been doing and has it been working. So a code like this, even for a company that feels that they are quite strong in this area around the ability to provide a balancing environment for their employees to operate and, and, and also switch off at the end of the day or the end of the week. We might be good at it, but it, it doesn't mean that we're not going to look at the code and ensure that it's embedded 
properly the language that we use, the communications that we use around it are reviewed and reminded with our employees. So it will give us an opportunity to reflect. But I have to be honest, a lot of what we do already, the code speaks to it. Mm. And it can be it can be simple things like status updates. So the tooling that you use internally in, in your company, for example, Shopify use Slack as our internal communication tool, and you can update your status in relation to the working hours that you work in there. And that seems very simple, but it is it really works. You know, Denise mentioned a methodology that Matheson have used around, you know, expectations around sending emails. That is part of our code of practice internally in Shopify. And we have built leadership principles around that. And, and the two previous speakers have both alluded to leadership teams being the role models for this. It, it, you know, it'd be highly disrespectful to employees if leaders are sharing this message around the right to disconnect and they themselves are not disconnecting at the end of the day. So it is for leadership teams to really sit back and reflect about how they are going to show up day to day in the code. Because a code piece of legislation, that's all well and good, but how is it practically going to show up in your company? And how are you going to day to day live it and ensure that your employees understand the parameters of it? And then, you know, we're touching on employee accountability and, and maybe that might come up through the questions later. But there is as much as the employer has, you know, standards and, and practices to put in place around this code. I have seen in Shopify firsthand that it is also the part of the employee to be accountable for how they show up and how they disconnect and how they build their virtual boundaries or even their boundaries in the office around their working times. So it, it, it's for both employers and, to, and employees to, mm. to listen to and to reflect on. And one of the points you made there at the start around communication is actually very important for a lot of clients looking at this from a starting point, because a lot of clients are quite spooked and I think concerned by the code. But what we've been trying to do is bring them through what's in the code to help them identify and recognize what they are already doing more than yourselves. That can be a very positive exercise for the employees to see that their employer is already doing some of this and perhaps ahead of the curve. And it can be an early, so to speak, in helping the employees to understand what the employer is doing here. Can I turn back then just to one question around your, your agile working model? Because mm -hmm. it is just so, so unique. Where does an employer start in putting together a permanent remote working model? Because it, it's not an easy challenge. Yeah, so... The biggest thing we saw was a couple of things. The technology is something that needs to be in place. And if you're going to set up, roll out and run a successful company globally across loads of different time zones, and it is going to be predominantly or 100% work from home remote, there needs to be a technology um, set up, an environment that is budgeted for and that you're willing to invest in, and that you're also willing to make employees reasonably accountable for, for as well. So for example, in our contracts, when you start with Shopify in a work from home environment, it is said in your contract that you will have strong Wi-Fi, that you will be able to connect to a protected router, and you will have an environment that you will be able to operate operationally in a work from home environment. And that is set out from the start in both our hiring rounds. So when our talent acquisition team speak to you, the constant story, Brian, is, is around 
you know, what is your work from home? Where do you plan setting yourself up? We start the story about work from home experience from the minute we meet our candidates so that the story has started already. And we did that from day one. So when Shopify, because Shopify from day one has always had people working from home. So our story around work from home was built in and weaved into those early. So talent acquisition is a massive tool for us to ensure that candidates and employees coming into work for Shopify understand the parameters and what we expect in relation to to work from home and then it's it's bolstered in our contracts that we mention it and then our own technology so you know a lot of people will have especially over the last 12 months if you've worked for a company that maybe didn't have excellent technology out of office so if you were trying to dial in from meetings and um, or you were trying to communicate with people outside of email it was hard the technology is a major thing and it's massively disengaging if you don't have strong technology to work a remote role. It just disengages employees. They hate it. Yeah, that makes sense. Russell, can I turn to you now to just bring you in on some of the challenges that we've seen clients trying to deal with uh, under the code? There clearly is an awful lot to the code. There is a number of different themes within it, but what would you identify as perhaps some of the, the more challenging aspects of it? Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, the code will throw up different operational and cultural issues for different employers, but um, I think there are some obvious challenges that will affect most employers with the code. I think the first and, and arguably the trickiest practical issue for many employers is the fact that the principles enshrined in the code are primarily based around what constitutes an employee's normal working hours and what constitutes out of hours, and that's something that Susan in particular talked about that will invariably place a real focus on how those terms are defined in contracts of employment and also just more generally understood in different businesses. And while that in itself isn't a bad thing, to be honest, it does create a tension potentially with the modern day flexible working practices that many employers like Shopify have in place now. And those practices and, and the benefits that they provide to both employers and employees, they're based around the employee having the freedom to choose when and where they work and you can see how that could be difficult to achieve in an environment where there is a need for clarity around normal working hours. However, the right to disconnect, in, in my view, doesn't mean that flexible workers have to sign off between 1pm and 2pm and then after 6pm or, or any other prescribed times for that matter. The right to disconnect um, has to be able to work for flexible workers at the times that suit them. So for instance, and if a flexible worker works on a particular day from 9am to 3pm and then logs off for a number of hours until 9pm and then works from 9pm to midnight, there's no reason why they can't exercise their right to disconnect that way if that works for them and of course if that works for the employer as well. And in fairness, I think when we as a group initially reviewed the code, um, our view was that it was going to be difficult for an employer to align the requirements of the code with flexible working. But I think Having now considered it in much more detail, we're definitely more comfortable that the code doesn't in any way jeopardize flexible working practices. You know, it may make the mechanics around those practices a bit trickier for employers to implement, but they can certainly coexist and even complement one another. And indeed, that's actually consistent with the code itself, which specifically recognizes that many employers work flexibly. Mm. And I understand from the 37 submissions that were sent into the department on the right to disconnect, that that was probably one of the key themes across all of them. And we fed into three of them and it was a key part of that as well. But are there practical steps employers can take to make sure that the two can coexist successfully? There absolutely is, yeah. So the starting point, I think, is that the employer's right to disconnect policy that we've heard all about up to this point and more particularly the measures under it. 
they need to clearly and specifically address how flexible workers can maintain clear boundaries between work and leisure. I, I think it's also reasonable and it's worth talking about something that Adrienne talked about, and that's the necessity to emphasise that flexible workers probably do have more personal accountability when it comes to managing working time than, say, employees who don't work flexibly. And that's not to say that flexible workers should be left to their own devices when it comes to working time, but there does need to be a recognition that flexible workers have more control over how and when they set boundaries between work and leisure. The other key points are that even though a flexible worker you know, should have more autonomy in relation to how they manage their working time, it's still really important that an employer appropriately monitors the working time of flexible workers. Again, that's actually something that's specifically called out in the code, which I'll talk about further in, in a few minutes. The last point uh, relates to the importance of the role that managers will play, and that's something that Denise talked about. And I think that's arguably going to be most pronounced when it comes to flexible workers, particularly in employers that don't have formal time management systems. So in those cases, it's likely that managers will be best placed to monitor the working time of flexible workers to ensure they get the appropriate rest and the time to disconnect that they need. So that could be informally, you know, keeping an eye on uh, work patterns or emails after hours, or it could be as part of a, a more formal system. So alongside that, I think it's equally important that managers get the training that they need in relation to the right to disconnect and the code. And that amongst other things, you know, that training focuses on that oversight role that managers will have, not just for remote workers, for flexible workers, but for all employees, really. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a vital part of formulating the right culture that managers are seen to be, you know, role models. And that's, again, something that's called out in the, in the code. Mm. And... Where would you see the other challenges in the in the code? We've talked about the main one, but I think it's not the only one. No, there's there's a few other practical ones to mention. I think the first one that kind of struck us was the fact that the code requires employees to notify their employer in writing where they've missed a statutory rest period or break, and then also the reason for that. Now, look, that hasn't been a feature at all in Irish workplaces up to this point. And to be honest, I think our expectations are that most employees just won't bother with it at all. Having said that, the fact that the code is explicit about it will probably mean that employers will receive some notifications on it. So I guess employers should prepare to deal with those, um, including apprising themselves of the obligations that employers have in relation to compensatory rest periods. In a similar sort of vein as well, you also have the code explicitly providing that employees can raise a grievance where they feel that the right to disconnect has not been respected or that their workload prevents them from disconnecting properly. Again, that facility has always been there for employees, but I guess the focus on it in the code probably means that uh, employers will, will see more grievances in relation to those issues. Mm. The last point then, just quickly, is in relation to the monitoring of working hours. So it's something that um, the other three speakers have also touched on. Just to be clear, though, the code does explicitly say that employers should use a time management system to specifically monitor the working hours of remote workers and flexible workers. And, you know, Employers have always had the obligation to uh, monitor and record the working time of employees under the Organisation of Working Time Act. But in our experience, a lot of employers, to be honest, will probably not be fully complying with that or even complying with it at all. And that's because they just don't have any type of time management system in place. We do, though, anticipate that this could be about to change. And I don't mean necessarily because of the code, albeit that will be something that will help move this along. I think what I'm getting at in particular is this Remote working is now set to become a much more common feature of the employment landscape across the globe. And 
in fairness, most employers have been grappling with the same kind of issue, and that's you know an employee's ability to disconnect and maintain boundaries. So I think there's already you know systems and products on the market, you know, in relation to time management systems. But I think the, the products and systems are going to become a lot more ubiquitous, a lot more prevalent, particularly for workers and flexible workers. So I think this is something that employers should probably have more of an eye on now and properly consider in relation to you know, complying with both the code, but also as well their statutory obligations. And then just to bring it back to the practical implementation of the code, what are the, the early steps that employers should and can be dealing with now? Yeah, so I think, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that we don't recommend employers making wholesale changes just yet um, until we kind of see what the lay of the land is in relation to the code. But there are certainly uh, some steps that can be implemented very easily, very quickly, and then, of course, there's others that will just take some time to properly implement. Even some form of measures, though, uh, will assist an employer, not just complying with the code, but also, you know, in defending claims in relation to it. The code is specific about the fact that if somebody brings a claim in relation to the relevant statutes, that they should be, you know, calling out the fact that there has been an alleged breach of the code. So in our experience in dealing with claims that have been brought in relation to other codes of practices, including the code on workplace bullying, if an employer can show that it's taken all reasonably practical steps to develop and, and implement practices and procedures to facilitate the right to disconnect, then it should be able to rebut an allegation that there's been a breach of the code and also that should assist them in defending a claim. So I think just as a first step, if you haven't already done this, I think employers should probably communicate with staff to confirm that the code is being considered and that further communications will be issued in relation to its implementation. I mentioned that because there's been a lot of media attention in relation to the code over the last week or week and a half, however long it's been out, and employees will therefore most likely have heard of it. So I think it's important in those circumstances that employees know that their employer is not going to ignore it and that the code will be considered and addressed. It'll also help in fairness dealing with employees who decide to take the implementation of the code into their own hands as well. So then in terms of the other steps, um, we've already talked about the importance of and the emphasis on uh, the implementation of a compliant code of practice. I think that's going to be all important. And, you know, there are issues that you need to sort of bear in mind when you're doing that. So that would include whether you've got a staff association or recognise a union. If you do, they should ideally be consulted with before you implement the uh, policy. If you don't have any sort of body like that, then you should consider whether you seek the views of the staff before you implement the policy. Again, as you mentioned, Brian, at the outset, the policy should be really tailored to the specific needs of the business, the customers, the clients that uh, the employer has, and also the roles performed by the employee. That you know deals with, amongst other things, what I talked before about flexible workers. You should also probably designate a HR person to oversee the implementation of the policy. The code talks about you know setting up a monitoring committee that's probably not that necessary. Most employers will probably just appoint somebody in the HR team and, and that is in compliance with the code. And then lastly, just the code should be rolled out as part of induction processes. Just on the team of policies, the code also says that other policies, relevant policies, uh, should be amended to reflect and refer to the right to disconnect policies. So that should be done. So for policies like a dignity at work policy, health and safety policy, and an annual leave policy as well, or family leave policies, I mentioned the annual leave policy because it may be that within an employer, there's kind of an informal practice where employees can be contacted from time to time when they're on annual leave. And strictly speaking, the code, you know, prohibits that, I guess. Uh, it's not something that the code 
wants to see happen. So I think, you know, it's not just about referring to the policy. You might have to actually amend something like an annual leave policy to actually set out, you know, measures and appropriate boundaries so that employees can ensure they get the rest and recuperation they're entitled to. The next step then, I think, should be that um, managers get training. We've talked about that at length. That's going to be a really integral part of the implementation of the code. There's less of an emphasis in the code on training employees more generally. And I think it will be important that employees are at least informed about the code and the right to disconnect and ideally trained, to be honest, in it and what it entails, because employees have to understand the obligations and the responsibilities they have in ensuring that the right to disconnect policy is is properly implemented. I thought Adrian's comments were really instructive about how well their culture has been formed and how well it works. And that's, you know, I'm sure at the heart of that is the fact that people take responsibility as they should. And I should also mention as well that to the extent that employees are fully informed and guided in relation to what their obligations are, that will also help an employer defend you know, any claim in relation to a breach of the code or, or the relevant statutes. Mm. So then very quickly, just look at implementing measures and practices in relation to the internal and external communication. So that's the point that Denise mentioned. Also, many, many employers have very well-established, well-developed DNI programs, uh, equality kind of initiatives, uh, well-being initiatives and programs. And those are things that probably need to be looked at now in the light of the, the code, just so that you can update them and refer to the, the right to disconnect And then last but not least, just ensure that you carry out an audit of your current practices and procedures just to identify where there are gaps and where changes and improvements can be made. Mm. And the audit, of course, Russell, will also help identify the early wins that you can talk about that you are already doing, uh, because this this can be a positive message to organisations. But overall, it sounds like the, the approach here is it's a balance between doing something but not doing too much. We don't need to rush in on this. And if anything, it would make sense to see how issues such as what does occasional mean, what are normal working hours, et cetera, how they are teased out by the WRC and by the market or your particular sector as well. And we've seen this in the past with other changes in regard to caseload that sometimes employers can oversteer in response to it. And it's very hard to roll back then. So there is a the balance is really important here. And I think that's something we'll, we'll be watching. What we're going to do now is just take a couple of minutes to run through three or four questions on a poll. We are keeping time for questions and answers, and we are all available to stay on after the hour. I appreciate not everybody will be able to join us, but if anybody wishes to, we're more than happy to stay on. Clearly, there's a huge level of interest in this topic. I think we had something like 850 people registered for the webinar today, which is the largest number we've ever had, which speaks for itself in terms of the level of interest. And we've got some really good questions coming in on the Q&A facility. If anybody does wish to raise additional questions, please do. But let me just focus on the questions here in the poll now for a couple of minutes. So first of all, do you have any form of right to disconnect policy in place already? The second question then is, do you have any company-wide measures in place already to encourage the right to disconnect? such as email headers are not responding until the next day, out of hours guidelines, people even being cut off from email on annual leave, which is perhaps a more extreme one, but we have seen one or two clients consider that. Third question then is, do you have any systems in place at present to record employee working hours? Fourth question is, have you had any employees raising this since the code was launched? We'd be interested to know that. And then finally, just to think ahead and look to the next piece in the jigsaw, 
which concerns you more? Is it the right to disconnect or is it the right to request remote working, which of course is coming in Q3 of this year as part of the overall campaign to address work-life balance? So I'll give you a minute with those questions and then we'll go through the results straight away. Okay, so the first answer is perhaps what I would have expected. <coughs> Certainly we know of clients who were looking at this. Some had a right to disconnect policy in place already. In our experience, the clients that did, it was perhaps because they had large French or German operations where this was already being rolled out at a much earlier stage. So I'm not hugely surprised by the result there. The second question then perhaps is tallies with it in terms of the, the number of companies already taking measures I would have expected a larger number to be doing something even if they don't have a right to disconnect yet. So again, I'm not hugely surprised by that, but it's interesting to see just the number, even that uh, 31% are already doing something. It'll be even more interesting to see if we ask the same question in six months' time. Question number three, do you have any systems in place at present to record employee working hours? I, I am a little surprised at that, actually, because my experience, and I think across the group and indeed talking to other employers and other employment lawyers across the market, generally speaking, clients haven't really complied with these requirements over the years. The requirements themselves were archaic when they were introduced 20 years ago. So given the way the market has changed, they're, they're very much out of date. And it would be interesting to see if as part of this overall campaign, that is going to be addressed. In my view, the reason why employers struggled to comply with them was twofold. Firstly, the cultural point I mentioned before of how it feels regressive to suddenly be saying to very senior and experienced and trusted and valued employees, can you record your time? I want to know what time you clocked in this morning and what time you went home. But secondly, there has just been, a, I think, a technical difficulty amongst many employers in finding the software that can comply with the particular requirements of the Irish legislation. But I think, as Russell said, because of the way the market has gone over the last 15 years, or 15 months rather, feels like 15 years, there will no doubt be many service providers in the technology space looking at some sort of enhanced products here. Then the next question, have you had employees raising this since the code was launched? A large number there saying no, which is perhaps surprising. The government is clearly on a, a very big drive to promote this and promote awareness around it. Maybe it's a snapshot in time, but on the first couple of days when the code came out, I did talk to a lot of clients who were receiving calls from their employees and indeed their managers as well around what they should be doing about this. But of course, they were ringing because they're the ones who had received those calls. It doesn't mean that every employer was receiving those calls from employees. But I suspect that will change because it is building up momentum. There's a huge amount of attention around this. And then finally, and this is what I'm particularly interested in, is which concerns you more, the right to disconnect or the right to request remote working? I actually think the right to request remote working is going to have a much greater impact on employers for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it will have a statutory basis, whereas the code of practice is a code of practice. Now, it doesn't mean it can be ignored, but the statutory right will just be a lot more actionable and perhaps will be clearer. But secondly, I think for that reason, and because so many employees are interested in remote working and continuing what they have developed over the last 15 months, I think employers are going to receive a large number of these requests and it probably will involve some element of an appeal mechanism as well. So I think the people who should be particularly concerned about this are the HR managers and directors who are actually going to be handling the burden and the admin around this into the future. So I don't know, Russell or Adrian, do you want to comment on any of the results there? 
there's a few different points. Yeah, sure. I, I'm just on the, the the very last question there, um, and for fear of sort of making things a bit awkward, but I have to say I disagree, Brian, and I'm not surprised to see, uh, that the right to disconnect is something that kind of concerns employers more. The reason being, I think the right to disconnect by its very nature is probably a bit more nebulous than something like the, the the right to request remote working. I think you're absolutely right. The right to request remote working is likely to be quite robust, and therefore, you know, there'll be very hopefully clear guidance in the legislation when it's enacted as to what needs to happen. So how the request is made, how quickly the employer has to get back if a refusal is is provided, how, how that looks. So at least there'll be clarity. I think mm. of employers maybe now at this stage, this early stage, bearing in mind the, the code was only issued very recently, they're probably looking at the right to disconnect as being a bit unclear for them. And, and that's, in fairness, going to be more for employers who probably don't have a very developed people strategy or initiatives like, you know, DNI and wellbeing and things like that. That'd be my view anyway. Okay. Thanks, Russell. Adrienne, would you like to comment on any of the, the poll results there? Yeah, like I, number four stood out for me, you know, have you had employees raising the since the code was launched? Now, obviously the code is only very recent, but it could potentially lean towards the fact that employers have managed the last 15 months quite well in relation to the unofficial right to disconnect. And, and maybe this is a, a sign of that. Mm. The one above it, and I know you alluded to this, Brian, in relation to people clocking in and clocking out and how that can feel demotivating for people, especially for people who have never had issues in relation to their working hours. There are ways and there there is technology being built, to your point, that will be less invasive and you will feel less that you are doing a clock in, clock out system. But there are ways of tracking it from the minute that you dial on to your computer. So there will be methodologies that employers will be able to use in the future that won't feel as demotivating for employees. So, you know, there are tech companies developing them and there are ways of tracking that already that doesn't feel as invasive as it first looks. So that's something to, for people to consider. Very good. Thank you. We'll just move on to the questions that have come in now over the course of the last hour. Susan, can I turn to you with the very first question? And that's around what type of claims employees could actually bring if an employer is seen to have breached the code in respect of them. Yes, Brian, that's a good question. Obviously, you know, it's only the, the code can be referred to in evidence. We, we think that the, the, the code will probably be used to support a breach of the Organisation Working Time Act if stipulated hours, legislated hours have been exceeded. And obviously the degree of compensation, I think breaches of the code will help the WRC to push that up in the general scale of the two-year period. Uh, we also think it clearly would be used by employees to support a constructive unfair dismissal claim and, and also, of course, the stress at work PI claims. But, you know, I wonder also what I've noticed is, you know, this has all been looked at before in France and Spain and Italy. And, you know, it, it's become commonplace there. And I think, you know, just looking at the, the questions and the poll results I and mean, having had many years in, in the UK and dealing with their right to remote working, I think it's just a question of it all bedding down and getting used to it. You know, as, as Adrian quite properly said, you know, it's a it's a cultural thing. It's bedding it down. And, you know, the worries may be quite acute now, but, you know, over time and with our experience from the UK and, you know, in Italy, France and, and our other international colleagues, it can be all quite calming. <laughs> Adrian, I have a question for you here. And unsurprisingly, lots of the questions are for you. And this is something I'm interested in as well. How do you build a sense of team with a group of people who have never worked together under the same roof and probably never will? Like I, we're all working remotely at the moment, but for most of us, 
at some point in our careers, we have shared an office or worked under the same roof as our colleagues, and we will again, but you're in a very different scenario, and, and that's what uh, this question gets to. Yeah, this comes up a lot, so I'm not surprised mm. to, to see it being asked. I can speak from a personal opinion. So I, as I said at the start, I'm, I'm working from home as a HR business partner with Chatfly for three years. The rest of my team is globally based. I'll talk to pre-COVID and examples of how this will show up. And I think that really has to be clear for people. A lot of people's work from home remote experience has been COVID based. And I've spoken to this a lot in some webinars that I've done. When COVID has, you know, eased off and restrictions have eased and there's more movement of people, working from home can be going, you know, going down to a cafe, can be meeting people for lunch. So there, there is an environment that people aren't getting to benefit from that comes with working from home at the moment because we're under such stringent restrictions. And I'm sure everyone's aware of that, but just to be aware that that is a thing. What Shopify has done to ensure that we meet up in some regard, again, this is post-COVID and we did it before COVID. So in Ireland, I'll talk to some examples in Ireland, we would do pop-up meetings, so pop-up offices. So we would have them across all provinces and you could, it was like an event, you signed up and you would have a hot desk space in an event space and you could go and work alongside your colleagues for a day. We'd also have annual events in Europe, in America, in Canada that you would travel to and go and see your team on an annual or biannual basis. So you would meet and what we're looking at going forward is a, is a process called bursting. So you'll meet and you'll spend time with your team for a few days at a location, and whether that's in Europe or whether that's in Canada, but you will meet as a team uh, in person again post-COVID. And outside of meeting and getting on planes and traveling to meet people, the other major thing, and I touched on this already, is our tooling. So we use a couple of different ways of communication. One of them is Slack and Slack is essentially a lot of people, I'm sure use Slack, but Slack is like talking to people on the corridor of a virtual office. So it's instant communication. You chat to people, it's nearly like WhatsApp. So you chat to them, they get a notification and you chat over and back. It's really, really good for easing some isolation that you can feel from working from home and make you a bit more connected to teams. And then obviously meetings, uh, we encourage a culture in Shopify of camera on it's called so when you dial into a meeting your camera is on and you engage with those people in in a meeting and there's there's lots of other ways that we look at it but they would be the main ones Brian. Mm, that's that's interesting and what's interesting about it is that different parts of it we see different clients trying that over the last 15 months particularly when it comes to helping induction of new people who have come in post-covid yeah um, who just haven't met their colleagues yet and they're kind of, they're the odd one out and that the 10 other people all know each other and have worked under the same roof, but they're the new person. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and again, just to stress to people that COVID working from home and post-COVID working from home is going to feel and look very different. And it has much more benefits around wellness and culture and engagement from an employee experience perspective. So the restrictions have brought a lot of isolation, I think, for, to a work from home environment and with restrictions easing, that's going to help a lot of that. Yeah, definitely. Denise, I have a question for you here now. It's around what steps or measures employers can take to promote a culture within which employees feel encouraged to disconnect. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Adrienne has really touched on a lot of those as well, but it's really just setting, you know, what is the culture and really setting that out. And I think it's from senior management level down that it needs to be pitched at that level and they need to be the visual representation of it's, you know, this is the policy we have in place that our employees work very hard during the day and they disconnect in the evening. They respect other employees, right to disconnect in the evening. And then in the occasional legitimate circumstances when they arise, you know, we do have that row in. So I think it's really just having that culture as part of your induction process, having that process, you know, it's as it's really being across every aspect of working life that it's very visual. And that's, you know, making sure that your communication policies, you know, just and, and that really is at the, you know, the footer of emails, having that kind of nod to the right to disconnect. If you're working across jurisdictions or across time zones, if you're engaging in flexible working where your hours just don't meet the standard hours because you have to respond to client needs. Um, it's just constantly having that, I think, you know, they're the steps that you take. They're the, they're the measures that you take. And, and it's all about the practical thoughtfulness that you're putting, that your work practices are in having on your own working time and, and that of others. And I think it's really, it, it will come down to training and it'll come down to your policy and it'll come down to the culture that you foster. Mm. So it probably requires the managers to be a little bit more proactive as well, where they see people acting out of line with the culture you're trying to create and you're trying to achieve. And that's the mindset change for a lot of employers, isn't it? Yeah, and that'll be new. That's a new task in, in mm. managers' remit. So it is, that's a new responsibility that they may not have had before to ensure, first of all, that they're complying with the code themselves and, and being that kind of visual compliant you know, person with it and also respecting others. But that will involve training and it will involve you know, making sure that they have the resources as well, that they can go, you know, if they if they have employees who are working you know, excessive work hours that they actually have a measure to go. Well, first of all, that's what we do. And secondly, I need another resource. So it'll have a knock on effect quite quite broadly. Thanks, Denise. Russell, there's a, a similar question for you. And the point here is just how proactive do managers managing employees that do seem to be working excessively out of hours or breaching the policy? Yeah, I think, you know, the code is very clear. And as Denise has said, and, and as Adrian has said, in terms of the, the practical experience that she's had, it's it's rightly important. I think they do have to be proactive now. It doesn't need to become, you know, a job in and of itself. But I think it's really important that managers keep an eye out for signs that people aren't setting the boundaries and adhering to the boundaries themselves, particularly where they're flexible working. I just think that managers have to get the training that equips them to identify when there are issues. And I think more importantly, the remedial action that they then put into place. But I think at a basic level, you know, just keeping an eye out for, you know, email traffic, keeping an eye out for work patterns and things like that, just sort of see if there's any telltale signs as to whether somebody isn't properly disconnecting because, you know, a lot of the time people will just be, you know, getting on with the job with the head down and, you know, they won't be respecting their own boundaries themselves. And, you know, it's important that those people are pulled up, I guess, if that's the right term and, and told that, look, you do have to you know, take a more pragmatic approach yourself, more open yourself to setting those boundaries. You know, as Adrienne said, you know, a lot of people will be dealing with remote working for the first time or to be relatively new. And I think you do have to get into the, you know, the personal discipline of doing things yourself and being accountable yourself for ensuring that you set your own boundaries. And if it's about decreasing the number of interruptions that employees are receiving in the evening or at the weekends, et cetera, then it could well be a scenario where a manager, if they see member of the team sent me an email on a late on a Friday evening or at the weekend or whatever that simply 
clearly didn't need to go, that they would say to the employee on the Monday, look, thanks for looking after that project, but there was no need for you to send that email on, on Friday night. That would have waited till Monday. Yeah. And I think we'll probably see more of those conversations. And it reminds me of the, the key pack decision when that came out first. And it, it did seem to be a bit of a shock to a lot of employers that this employee had been awarded compensation for repeated emails late into the night. But the point there was where the employer had failed was the employer knew the employee was excessively working late hours into, I think in that case, it was quite extreme. It was often till one o'clock in the morning, et cetera. But the employer took the position of, well, we didn't ask her to do those hours. She was doing those hours because she was a poor performer, was the employer's position. And everybody else in that job can usually finish by six o'clock. But where they fell down was the legislation, of course, says an employer shall not permit an employee to work. Uh, in breach of the 48-hour average working week. And that case referred back to an earlier case against IBM, where IBM successfully defended basically an identical case, because in that case, the manager had noted the employee was working excessive hours and intervened, said to the employee, we've noticed this pattern, what's going on here, what can we do to help you, where can we support you? Yeah, and and I think, you know, it's not that managers and um, I'm sure there's manager, managers listening to what we're talking about it's not like these guys and, and women will have lots of different um, duties and responsibilities in relation to this now it'll just be working in parallel with all the different measures that the employer will be putting in place all those email footer delayed kind of email uh, protocols th- those types of things that should reduce down the traffic of emails and communications out of hours so it'll be more obvious to somebody like a manager who's keeping you know an eye on things as to patterns and things like that that are that are developing that perhaps aren't necessarily allowing people to properly disconnect. Edren, there's another question for you here, and it's what advice would you give to an employer that is considering a permanent remote working model and where would they start with this? Well, I can, I'll touch on a couple of things. I've mentioned culture a lot. I, I really feel like it is the foundation of how we've been successful. I will touch on we have a call-in culture around... So the, the right to disconnect, I suppose, and how we already have this embedded in Shopify. And the calling culture I'm talking about is that you're having, Brian, I think you alluded to it there a couple of minutes ago, you're having candid conversations with people in relation to what people are noticing. It's a really important foundational aspect of remote or work from home environments. You have to have leadership teams able and willing and comfortable with the fact that they are going to have to call in people's culture to align with your remote strategy. And that leads me to having a remote strategy. So we would have a digital by design team and they manage everything in relation to how we research remote work, how we roll out our remote models, our technologies we use, the equipment we use, our policies that we put in place to look after our our employees in relation to contractual um, entities in our global locations, to well-being. So there needs to be a structure and a strategy in relation to how you're going to roll out your remote strategy and the communication around that. The other piece is massively partnering with talent acquisition and ensuring you've got a recruitment team that are able and willing and have the skill set to globally hire and also hire people for a remote environment. It's a totally different skill set that you're looking for. And it really can be an attitude in people. Have people actually thought about working from home long term? Does it suit them? Is it the right move? So there's there's loads of there's loads of items. But again, I'll come back to one of the biggest 
boundaries or barriers Shopify would have seen early on and when they researched with other companies before they went um, down the remote model was the technology. Loads of companies who have been here before and were really early adopters had poor technology and it just didn't work. So technology is the one of the biggest thing. And then your, your remote strategy, you're going to have to have a person or a team, depending on the size of your organization, to actually research and look at your remote strategy and how that's going to roll out. Your culture, if you've got a culture team or a culture person, how you're going to embed it in your leadership principles and also talent acquisition. How are you going to hire people remotely? How are you going to set them up for success? The future of work has just pulled forward by a decade. We're, we've jumped much further than we thought in a year. Mm. Um, and it's now forcing employers to having to make these decisions that this person has posed this very reasonable question. But there's loads of facets to this. I would speak to companies, set up time, research people that have done it good and, and, and not done it good. For, for the people that have got it wrong, they're as important to talk to as the people that have gotten it right. And if, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy, Shopify is very willing to share information of how we have done this in a certain regard and, and we're open to that if, if people need assistance. Thanks, Adrian. Susan, I have a question for you here now. It's come up a couple of times and that's whether people can actually individually opt out of the code. Yes, Brian, that's a, that's a good question, isn't it? I know employment lawyers, it's always very difficult to opt out of anything that has a statutory basis. Obviously, this is not a statutory basis, so it's, it's, it's a good question, actually. And I think it arises from the perceived clash between, you know, an employer given absolute freedom and trust to the employees to work when and how they can, as long as the product is done, and the clash potentially between that and having a right to disconnect. So I think the answer is, can you opt out of it? No. You still under the code, if you want to comply with it as you should, is that you need to give clarity, some parameters around when you're required to work. Because bottom line is you still have to consider and implement some right to disconnect. And I think that it flows from that. You have to look at some parameters around the hours and how you can really get the right to disconnect fitted in. Good question, though. Mm, and there's a similar question, which I think looks at it from the employer's perspective again. If the code is not legally enforceable, can the employer ignore it? And I can imagine there are a large number of employers that will take a, a risk-based approach to this that, well, look, okay, maybe we should do this and maybe we're expected to, but for our particular organisation, it's going to be very difficult, so we're, we're just not going to. What would you say to that? Yeah, well, that's true. It's non-binding at the moment, but it's a code and, you know, it can be taken as in evidence against you in um, employment proceedings. And, you know, it's getting great publicity, so it, it will be. Now, you're right, it's obviously non-binding and it's been, you know, in public, it's been said it's binding immediately. And there's been a lot of forces binding immediately. But I think over time, maybe not now, but the WRC, Labour Court, etc., there will be looking at the code and breaches of it, probably less stringently on this day. But as you said, Brian, from the poll, six months' time may be a different story. Uh, that culture change must be happening. So not legally enforceable is taken in evidence and probably, you know, the, the courts will take a more stringent view of non-compliance over time, I think would be the answer to that. Mm. And it goes back to our point about let's not rush in on this. It Absolutely. reminds me of the, the Ronald Reagan adage of don't just do something, stand there. Absolutely, because if you affect contractual changes now, they could be expensive and they could be difficult to roll mm. back on because, again, would need agreement. So see how the dust settles, see how France have done it. They've done it since 2017. See how Spain has done it, Italy, some South American countries. You know, let the dust settle a little bit. And actually that leads on to one of the other questions. It has come up on two or three of them around 
And I think it was the German law provided for this, that for certain employers of a sufficient size and in certain roles, the server had to be cut off at the normal end of the day. So if it was half five for a particular employee, well then, even if they wanted to send emails or receive emails, they, they simply couldn't. And people have asked whether that's something that we see happening here. There's certainly nothing in the code that requires employers to go that far. I think it is probably the very extreme end of the spectrum in terms of how you might go about this. Of course, if an employer feels that that's the right way for them to do it, well, then they're free to do it. But I think it's also a good example of don't go too far too early because it may be very difficult to row back on that. Now, it could be something employers could look at in terms of annual leave to make sure that employees do genuinely switch off for the longer break in the summer. And while I'm certainly not aware of any employers in Ireland that shut off the server at the end of each day, I am aware of one or two employers that have considered the idea of shutting employees out of the server during annual leave. So it'll be interesting to see how that one develops. Denise, there's a question here for you again in regard to existing documentation and whether in light of the code or what employers are trying to achieve, whether they need to dust off their existing templates and make any changes to them. Yeah, I mean, the, the code does say that the, that the contracts of employment should refer to them. So I think it's, it would be prudent to update your template contract employments and make reference to the to the code or to the policy that's been put in place in terms of, you know, that other, you know, working time documentation, if there's on call or shift work, if you've got those types of arrangements in place, they may need to be changed because the best practice policy very much is bespoke for the measures that are being implemented for the company. So you know, I think it is important that policies are updated, but potentially where the decisions have been, where the measures that are going to be put in place are put in place. And then, you know, the policies that require, potentially the grievance policy might need cross-referral, or as uh, Russell had mentioned, your annual leave policy might actually need updating. It's not just a cross-referral there, but depending on the policy that you put in place or your email communications policy, potentially, you know, if you put in place a policy similar to, let's say, the internal email policy we have in place, you might want to update your policies in that sense. But it's just all with the nod of not going too far just yet and seeing how the how the dust settles, but it will, there will certainly be policies that will need to be updated and the and the employment contracts. Russell, I have two questions here, which one is general, the other is specific, but I think they both address the same. Does the code now require employers to be much clearer in terms of the expectations around not only whatever the normal working hours are, but also the expectation on the employer and the employees in regard to responding to emails out of hours? And then the, the specific question relating to it is, in regard to roles where you know over the course of time there will be periods where you can foresee out-of-hours requirements. So the example given was accounting and sales. So at the end of each quarter, for example, the accounting team may have to do up the numbers or the sales team likewise. So you can say in January, at the end of March and so on, there will be long hours required that week. So how do we build that in? Yeah, I, it goes back to, I suppose, the, the focus that the code has on, you know, what represents normal working hours and what represents out of hours and indeed what's occasional out of hours working and what's routine out of hours working. So I think to answer your first question, I think there does have to be clarification applied to some of these normal working hours because once there's that clarification applied, then it's going to be obviously easy to point to when somebody is working out of hours and then you know it's a, it's a slightly more difficult then thing to identify the extent to which somebody is working out of hours whether that's occasionally or, or routinely 
you know, if issues are raised under the code, it's invariably going to come back to that. It's going to come back to, well, are you working routinely out of hours? Because that's what the code sees as being problematic. So I think there does have to be clarification and there does have to be an exercise where people's expectations are managed in relation to what represents normal working hours and, and what represents out of hours working. I think to the second question then around a situation where there will be very clear periods in a quarter in a year where a particular cohort will be working lengthy hours routinely out of hours. I think if that's something that is very much signposted, you know, at a very early stage and, you know, the, the example you gave of the finance team, I guess, is a very good one because they will always have a very, very intense period of work in and around the quarter ends and the half year ends and year ends. So that could almost be built into somebody's contract where you're offering a contract to somebody. You can say, look, your normal hours of work will be nine to five, but there will be periods during the year, such as towards the end of the quarter or the end of the year, where you will be required to work out of hours. And that's not something that will be routinely requiring you to do. It's just that there will be that period where that's just a requirement of the job. And I think, you know, bringing that clarity, bringing that transparency should hopefully obviate the need for an employee to kind of raise issues. Because if it's in the contract and there has been some transparency around the fact that there will be a need for kind of batches of out of hours work to happen throughout the year, then they know what they're signing up to. They understand that that's in their contract and, and hopefully that will reduce the, the chances of a dispute arising. Okay. There are two other questions here that I, I'll deal with quickly. First is whether or not you have to have a specific right to disconnect policy or whether you can just incorporate it into your existing working time policy. On one level, you could take the view that the code is a code it's not binding to begin with, so you don't have to do any of this. But it's an expectation now that the WRC will be looking to see. So I think if employers want to put in place this policy, well, then they can have it as a standalone policy or they can build it into a, an existing working time policy. It doesn't really make a difference as long as you're covering the substance of the points that the code deals with. The second one is quite a practical point, and I remember this question actually coming up for a client when the KEPAC decision came out, and it relates to colleagues who are working on the same team in similar roles, but in different jurisdictions. And the question there was, if the Irish team are finished for the evening, but one of the American team just need a quick answer from one of them on something, does this now mean that they shouldn't be doing that? And I don't think the department or indeed employers want this code to stand in the way of people being able to move work along to the extent that they can achieve this balance. So I remember in that case, and I think it would still stand, what we would be saying there to the employer is that the employees in Ireland should understand that there may be, as the term goes, occasional requirements for them to answer a short email. So if an email comes in late in the evening from one of the US colleagues who just needs a short answer, that doesn't seem an excessive requirement. But if that becomes a routine thing happening four or five times a day on a regular basis, well, then clearly they've gone much further than they should. So I think we'll wrap it up at that. There's been a huge amount of really interesting questions come in and interesting content covered over the course of the last hour. Adrian, your contribution in particular has been very well received. It's just been so interesting for all of us to, to learn how that experience and journey has gone. So I would like to thank everybody on the panel today. I would like to thank everybody who's dialed in to join us for the session. We will have other masterclass sessions coming up in the coming months, and we'll keep you all in updated on that. I think in particular, we will have one on the right to request remote working. There have been a lot of questions on that. We haven't really got into them because the answer to everything would have to be qualified with, 
We'll have to wait and see what the legislation says. But clearly, there's a lot of interest in that. So we leave it at that. Have a good day, everybody. And thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.